more people. Good evening, everyone. Um, welcome to the second of uh, the Monday lectures of this term. Still haven't learned which, which term is which. I think I might get to it by the time I leave. Um, um, and a great pleasure to introduce um, Hugh Lauder from Bath, who I worked with for about 10 years now. Um, is it that long? Sorry? That long? It is. It is <laughs> you haven't changed a bit, Harry. <laughs> no, I know. Um, um, and uh, our work together was mainly around <coughs> um, the Rising Powers initiative that ESRC had <coughs> when we ended up jaunting around the world looking at the rapidly changing economies of Brazil, Russia and um, South Africa and thinking about the implications for well-being of young people. Um, this piece of work is something that's been running on with a colleague of um, Hughes in Cardiff for many years now, which is building a <coughs> critique of the notion of human capital. I know several people in this audience will be interested in that, partly because I've attended other <coughs> lectures which have butted onto the same sort of argument. So really looking forward to it, and thank you very much indeed for coming along. Thanks, Harry. Um, well, good evening, everyone. It's like the graveyard shift at, at 5 o'clock, you're just expecting to go for a wine or a beer. Um, I'll try and make it as gripping as I possibly can, um, when actually what I'm trying to preside over is awake uh, the death of this particular theory. So with that, I shall now take off my jacket, Tony Blair style. Um, always signified that he meant business, but I used to do it years before he ever started. So, um, And then we shall talk about human capital. So uh, there are many of you in this room that will understand human capital theory um, in detail. But for those of you who are not, um, as it were, the conoscenti, um, let me just say a few words about human capital theory. Human capital theory is the theory that guides policy. Uh, it guides policy in this country. Uh, it guides it for the World Bank, although the World Bank now realises there's something up and it's not quite right. Um, and it has guided many of the, much of the thinking about the relationship between education and the economy, and in particular the labour market, for over a period of 25, 30 years. So this is a theory that um, has a very dominant uh, position in the thinking of policymakers. And what I want to suggest to you tonight is that that thinking is deeply flawed, um, that basically, with some exceptions, because otherwise the hordes are going to come down on me shortly, but with some exceptions we should be killing it off. Um, and there are no exceptions. Um, by the no exceptions, um, what I'm thinking of is that there are some countries where it looks plausibly the case that there is a strong connection between education and the labour market. Um, and you've heard the first bit anyway, it's all right, you haven't missed anything. Um, and those countries are, are for example, um, Germany, um, and it may be Switzerland and it may be Austria. And what you find in those countries is a much more finely calibrated relationship between uh, education, uh, training and the economy. And just to give you a kind of heads up on this, as they say in America, um, Andres Schleicher, who of course runs PISA and all those other things, uh, PIAC and all those other kind of reports, um, said to the German government, the Swiss government and the Austrian government, 10 years ago, you're totally off the pace you're in the wrong place altogether, you need mass higher education. And they said thanks, goodbye, uh, and left him to it. 
Um, and although the numbers going to higher education in those countries uh, is increasing, they were right and we were just wrong. Um, and that I can say almost unequivocally. However, that said, um, there are still fundamental problems with the German relationship between education and the labour market. And that is mu as much about theory as it is about the empirical relationship. And I want to talk a bit about the theory um, and the difficulties with that theory uh, this evening. So, let's then go back to um, Mr. Schleicher. I was in Germany uh, about a year ago. I was in Hamburg, the IEAA, you know, the, which does TIMS and those sorts of things. And I refer to him as Dr. Schleicher because in Britain on the television he's always referred to as Dr. Schleicher. Man puts his hand up and he says, he is not a doctor. He has no doctorate. He is Mr. Schleicher. <laughs> Very precise German view of titles. So, um, the official view of human capital theory, seen as central to the education economy relationship, uh, especially in the knowledge economy, uh, Gary Becker, the doyen of human capital theorists, called it the age of human capital. Most governments have agreed. And the OECD, to this very day, still believes it. Um, but it's an ideological theory, um, I'm going to argue, with respect to... Sorry, I've got two respects in there. It's too much respect. Um, <laughs> to obscuring capitalist and patriarchal relations. Uh, and particularly, I want to look at this analysis as I work through it. And I'm not going to go through all the slides because that'd be a bit painstaking. I'll just signal where I'm having another crack at them and then move on to the guts of what I want to talk about uh, in terms of both productivity and capital. In other words, they don't understand the relationship between, or human capital theory can't un comprehend the relationship um, between productivity and income. And um, the notion of capital is now a metaphor which is flying apart at the seams. That, so I'm being provocative. And I should say there are two people sitting on my shoulders here. Um, one on my right will be Phil Brown, who would think I am going off piece slightly in terms of the provocative approach I'm taking. The other is um, Antonia Kupfer, who's Professor of Macro Sociology at Dresden. She's written just a superb feminist critique of human capital theory. Um, and she would be thinking I'm far too much to the right. So I'm going to chart a middle road through those two thinkers. So, the OECD view. Let me just run through some of what the OECD does. Um, if you look at um, education at a glance, 2014, so the latest, you will see that that book, that tome, is saturated in human capital theory. And I'll just give you some examples of that and then point out why it's fundamentally misleading. Um, so... This is quotes. The OECD countries depend on a sufficient supply of high school workers. Wrong. Probably quite incorrect. Um, educational qualifications are frequently used to measure human capital and the level of an individual's skills. Yes, that is the case. It has been the case, although that's no longer the case, for example, in some of the OECD's own work, where they are, and I'm going to come back to this point towards the end when I'm looking at capital, where they're decomposing um, notions of human capital into individual skills, um, which is in itself is problematic. Um, those um, people who have the lowest levels of educational qualifications are great risk. Um, 
So what they're doing is buying into the idea that we live in a knowledge economy uh, and that the knowledge economy is one where if we invest in education, uh, all will be well for those that invest in that education. And we know from the work that Phil Brown and I have done that we don't live in a knowledge economy, it's an imaginary, it doesn't exist, it doesn't get anywhere close to existing. What we live in is knowledge capitalism and that has a very different animal with very different effects and not the effects that these people think. Is that too fast? Is that okay? Okay. Right. So, this is then in translating into employment prospects. You know, 80% of tertiary educated uh, people are employed compared with over 70% of people in upper secondary. So, the idea is that if you want to be employed, then you need to be tertiary educated. Now, already you will be beginning to see the flaws in all this. I don't even have to spell it out for you. It's there. And earnings. <coughs> so low-level skills are more vulnerable, and the economic rewards vary. Of course, chosen field of education, correct. Um, and the demand for high-level skills have grown. Well, that's, again, highly problematic. In, in my view. When I come to the end of this bit, I'm then going to throw in some caveats because there are different forms of human capital theory, some of which are innocuous and fine and others which are not. So, now, Mincer. Uh, mince, so that's called a Mincerian assumption because it was made by a guy called Mincer. And I'm going to address this point. But Mincer argued, and he showed in a paper which he published in 1955, 56, something like that, um, that um, the more you, um, first of all, you start with good educational qualifications, and then there's an upward curve in terms of your income because you get an extra return in terms of your experience and what you learn on the job. So that's a Mincerian assumption, and what I'm going to do is smack it on the head shortly, and it's quite shocking. Um, so, increase over time um, of earnings, as long as, of course, with other social benefits, but they're not really interested in those too much. Um, and so that's another assumption. So, first of all, get a good education and you'll get be employed. Get a good education, not only will you be employed, but you'll get higher levels of income. And then they, those levels of income will carry on as you go through your working life. So, you can see the story that's being told here by the OECD. Now let me just pause there because let me throw in some caveats before I get on to the next bit because I'm going to demonstrate this just doesn't hold up at all. All those claims I've just made on behalf of the OECD don't hold up. The caveats are this. My target, Phil Brown's target, um, Antonio Kupfer's target, is neoclassical economics in relation to human capital theory, which means that basically the assumptions are the line of causality is one where you go from education to becoming more productive, and in becoming more productive, you therefore earn a higher income. So, education, income, productivity. Well, sorry, productivity, income. So that's the line of causation. There are other forms of human capital theory that don't tie to that particular model that simply go, we've got skills mismatches. Well, we will always have skills mismatches under capitalism. 
That's never going to ever change. And you can do very interesting stuff on, well, which particular kinds of um, subjects you invest in, in terms of higher education, will give you, get you the most reward. And then you, but then you've got to ask a question. And the question is, well, why do people go and take subjects like sociology where they're not going to get a high reward? Um, in other words, the fundamental assumption driving the neoclassical model is one which says that people are basically calculating pleasure machines, as one economist has talked about them. But basically what they're interested in is the pursuit of self-interest through rational instrumental means. That's the basic driver um, of this theory, which goes, you invest in education because you're going to get a higher return. You, through your education, you become more productive. Through your productivity, you get higher income. So that's the link. And it's driven by this assumption of homo economicus, as this person's called. Okay, then let's have a look to see what the real world looks like in relation to that. And there'll be two or three people in this room that have seen these graphs before, but I want to throw up an anomaly in them and then try and address the anomaly, which we haven't discussed before. What you see there is the UK male hourly earnings by age groups, and I'll put up women in a minute. And what you have over here is age. 21 to 29, 30 to 39, 40 to 49, 50 to 64. What you have here is the top decile earners, and you can see they're miles ahead of anyone else in terms of their earnings. What you have here is the graduate median, this red line, and above it you have the eight top decile A-level grades. And what that tells you, and this is shocking, um, and it certainly goes against human capital assumptions, is that it's probably not worth you going to university if you're a top A-level student in terms of this kind of analysis, which is quite shocking. Underneath that, you've got the graduate bottom decile, which is this bunch here, um, the median A-levels there, and then the A-level bottom decile here. So that tells you two things. It first of all tells you that everyone who is a graduate isn't going to be earning great salaries. That there isn't a homogenous group of people who are graduates. They go into the labour market and have very different experiences in terms of their returns. Um, so that's the first point. But the second, and then there's a third point, but the second powerful point here is look at the way these flatline. That's not what Mincer predicted. Mincer predicted they'd all go more or less like those at the top decile. They'd go up, and they don't. They just don't. And there may be very good reasons for that. Uh, it may well be to do with the way in which corporates are restructured nowadays. <laughs> Universities are restructured these days. So the idea that you kind of step on a career ladder and move up it in increments every year is largely a thing of the past what you're much more likely to get is a bonus at the end of the year, but it's unconsolidated, doesn't relate to a pension or anything like that. Um, you just get a bonus if you've done well. Hence the flatlining. But there is a question when it comes to gender. So let me just have... If you can keep that in mind in terms of where these characters are starting and then how much they're earning... So these characters are earning about 42, 43 pounds an hour uh, when they're between 40 and 49. Now let's have a look at the women. 
Massive difference, right? Huge. Huge. Now, human capital theory has no concept of power apart from market power in a certain limited sense. But you look at this and you go, okay, what seems to be happening is what actually human capital theory predicts, which is that women will come out of the labour market at a certain age because they're going to have families. And that's what Becker argued. He said, women um, will come out of the workforce, they will be penalised for it because they've come out of their careers. And not only that, but because they have so many more... Get this, he wrote this in 1983, by which time we'd had a second feminist revolution, right? He said, but women have many more roles than men do, and that's why they're less productive at work. Ha. Huh. <laughs> that was the argument. That was exactly the argument. So when you look at this, you go, okay, well, has he got a point? Because look, what happens here is that these people, like the male precursors, come up like that, and then they flatline. So what I did was, so now I'm thinking just in terms of human capital theory, because I have colleagues who are human capital theorists, and they go, oh, this is entirely consistent with our view in that particular respect, in that limited respect. And I go, how so? And they go, because that's when women leave the labour market. They rise, and then they drop off. And actually, when you start here, there's not a lot of difference at the starting point in terms of their salaries. So then I thought, okay, what I've got to do is find out at what age women have their first child, if they're graduates. Seems a reasonable thing to do. So I did. And in England, it is around here, 35. Oh, solid. 35. <laughs> hey. Um, in America, uh, it's a little younger, but it's split up. So about 36% of American women have their first child after the age of 35, um, and then the rest below that. And in Germany, it's similar to the UK. So you'd say that prima facie, it depends on how, you, how this is constructed and you look at it in detail, but prima facie, that argument of Becker's doesn't wash. But what I want to do is say that even if it did wash, there's a whole set of questions that we need to ask about well, why are women in a different situation, in a different context, simply because they have children? It's a fundamental question. So, you're happy with that? Is that, a, is that you're following the argument and why that OECD stuff is kind of, like, ridiculous? I mean, it's partially true. It's, I'll come to you. It's partially true in the sense that, yes, graduates do earn more, but as we'll see, the reason they earn more is they bump the less skilled out of the labour market. Yeah, they would have presumably got, yeah, but then they're graduates, not A-level. These people, the A-level decile people, those that didn't go to university. Yes, but it does show that part of the top if they do go to university, they are very likely to earn high Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah. But that's not everyone. That's, that's the point. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, they do. And if you want to look at the polarisation of income and wealth, if you follow that arm forward, that would, this would be part of the answer to that. No, it won't, you see. It's interesting, because come back up here. 
Yeah, and not only that, but it's the same in America. We ha the, the, the American data is almost a mirror image of this. Well, exactly the same, actually. So it's not that. No, it can't be that. It's nothing to do with women having children or families or whatever. Yeah. Is that okay? Yeah. Okay. So, what are the crisis indicators um, in relation to this very tight account of human capital theory? Well, what you see is that around 50% of graduates in the UK and the USA are doing subgraduate work. Now, that's a tricky concept in itself because there's a real question about how you judge what is graduate work. And there are a number of different ways, and if you want to ask me, I'll tell you later, of ways in which that can be judged. None of them are perfect, as ever. Um, but what the notion of a graduate job does is to give you a benchmark to be able to make these sorts of claims. Um, otherwise, and I think we're fast approaching the stage where, in fact, we won't be able to talk about graduate work because so many graduates are doing work which is either non-graduate or mixed graduate and non-graduate, all those sorts of things. Um, remarkably similar for ONS. And I'll throw in one other thing. Um, we might think that this is um, to do with the economic crisis, and there are good structural reasons why it won't be entirely, but you can see that there's been an increase of graduates doing non-graduate work from 37 to 47% um, in the period of time there. There's credential inflation, so that's another problem. Um, and I'm not going to deal with it in any great detail, uh, except I want to make one point. When you look at that, you'll see that, you know, the numbers of taxi drivers who are graduates, firefighters, etc., has increased significantly um, in those particular occupations. But I want to make another rather slightly different point. So you hope you're okay with that? I mean, it just shows you. Yeah. Um, that is that part of the difficulty with the notion of credential inflation, or not the notion, but with it, is that you also see people seeking to increase their credential, their status through having credentials. So nursing might be an example. So when I went to a um, seminar that um, Ken and Ewart were running before Christmas, someone there was saying the great paradox is that more and more nurses, or all nurses now have degrees, at a time when they're being thoroughly routinized in terms of their work. So there's a kind of huge paradox there. But what I want to argue here is two things. The first is that this notion of trying to raise your status, raise your income, raise your skills perhaps, um, is to do with <coughs> notions of power and is to do with notions of culture. That when we understand why people have particular sorts of jobs, the struggles are to do with the power struggles, but they're also to do with notions of um, what we understand or believe people should do. So, and I'm going to come back to this point in a minute, but if we thought that nurses were about caring, then why would they need a degree? And then if I ask that question, what I want you to do is examine the prejudice underneath it, because I'm going to come back to it. There's another branch of human capital theory, and this kind of is helpful, signaling theory. And what that basically says is we're not particularly interested in productivity, but we want to know why some people are selected for jobs and others not. And signaling then means that a college graduate 
sends out a signal if they retain this piece of paper. Um, but it's a pretty empty vessel as a theory. You need to be able to fill it with sociological analysis of why some people with certain sorts of degrees get certain sorts of jobs, that kind of thing. But it is interesting in this case because one of the things that's interesting or puzzling is that employers will prefer a graduate over a non-graduate for routine low-skill or low-wage work, being a bar person, for example. And the question then is, why? And what's also interesting about that is that they get paid a bit more than non-graduates. So there's something else going on there. But what the degree does is signal something. And it could be that they're punctual, they're articulate, they're motivated. Well, you know, all those things that graduates all are. <laughs> you know. uh, apart from my daughter, but anyway. <laughs> right. Okay, so that's the stuff on being paid more. Okay, so the upshot of all this employer strategy is that um, the least qualified um, are chucked out of the market, uh, labour market. And that, 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 of course, in a sense, is what the OECD is saying. But they're not telling you that not all graduates are going to get graduate work, that a lot of them are going to be doing significantly subgraduate work in order to um, have a living of any sort altogether. And it's that which is misleading. Um, it's Marx called ideology one-sided, that, that had an element of truth to it, but it didn't tell you the whole truth, as it were, didn't give you the full picture. Um, and that's the OECD is a clear example of that, I think. Um, there are problems here and um, about the cost of education. And again, I've mentioned my daughter and muttering under my breath um, the courses she's taking and the cost of that and the returns, which will be who knows what. Um, but the costs are rising all the time, of course. And it's a massive, massive miscalculation by biz um, when they started setting these fees at £9,000 and somehow assuming that graduates would easily be able to pay that back. Um, they know now it's a massive, it was a huge error, massive mistake. But what I'm reliably told is that actually government aren't much interested in whether students pay back or not because the, the sums are relatively small relative to the National Health Service costs. So there's a kind of like, we're losing money, fine, it's not as bad as the National Health Service. Whether that's the case, I'm not sure, but that's what I was told. So now I come on to the theoretical stuff. Why no exceptions? So what's fundamentally wrong with human capital theory that you can't simply apply it in an empirical context? You can apply it in an empirical context and you'll get the results that I've just shown you. But I think there's more here that needs to be said. Um, and I want to now refer to if Phil Brown's on one shoulder, Antonia Kupfer's on the other. I now want to refer to her work. She wrote uh, and published earlier this year, last year, uh, a paper which was a feminist critique, economic critique of human capital theory. And it was, it's very powerful. And not only is it powerful, but it um, pre... What's the word? Predated Piketty by about two months in terms of the critique. Uh, not in terms of the kind of neo-Marxist analysis that Piketty does, but in terms of understanding the issue of productivity. And she makes three points. The first is that productivity and reward assumed as a direct 
a direct biohuman capital is highly problematic. Um, and so Piketty argues that, look, we've got this fundamental problem. We've got these people at the top earning huge sums of money, our 90th percent, or the, the top decile people, um, for example. But then when you justify that, he says, you have to do it in terms of marginal productivity. And then when you look at the top of corporates, are how do you judge whether these people are actually worth the money that they are gaining? Um, if you've got uh, a marginal productivity analysis where you're going, okay, if we add one more worker to this production line, we can produce 20 more widgets. You've got some understanding of, this, of that. But if you're on the other hand, you're going, well, you've got this guy and he's earning billions or millions or whatever. Is he worth it? Is he that much more productive? That becomes a highly, highly problematic question. And Piketty describes this as an ideology. Uh, and Antonio's done pretty much the same thing um, by arguing that there are fundamental problems with understanding productivity in terms of marginal productivity, uh, sorry, marginal productivity, um, but that also that what she wants to do is build and understand these sorts of claims in terms of gender and power relationships. So here's what she said. And it's almost, I mean, you could almost take it out of her paper and stick it into Piketty's book or vice versa, except he doesn't do gender. That's the, dif the difference. So how can productivity be measured? Um, and of course the issue becomes, as she points out, is acute when it comes to the service sector. And I've been asking the question of many of my friends and colleagues who are economists pure, as it were, well, what's the problem with productivity in this country? And one answer given by Jeff Mason is that it's all measurement error. We have no clue what the actual story is. And there are different stories that can be told, but no one has any clear view about that. Um, so, so the issue of productivity is interesting, because she goes on to say, um, what about productivity in these service sectors, like care? Do you remember I was talking about care earlier? And care workers are at the bottom of the pile in terms of wages, absolutely the bottom of the pile, and often exploited with it. And yet, you could understand that in terms of human importance, having a good care worker would be a wonderful thing to have, very important, and in a certain sense, highly productive. But how you measure that, how you understand that, becomes a very difficult thing indeed. And so, what she's saying is, since most care workers are women, there's a gender dimension to this that needs to be understood. Um, so productivity is highly culturally conceptualised. Then, of course, she goes on to a more accounting point, which is that, of course, um, when we think about that relationship between education, productivity and income, what's not costed into that in terms of rate of return analysis, the returns on the education you have, is the cost of actually raising you as an educated person. The informal education of the home, the m amount of time that um, women have to devote to that, typically, not always, but typically. Um, which employers don't pay for, of course. They don't pay for most education, actually. And so um, you end up, uh, she says, that the concept of human capital deflects attention from the cost necessary to create, create it. 
Um, so the consequence of all that is that what we have here with human capital theory is a highly, um, highly ideological concept, um, which is one-sided. And it doesn't take into account either capitalist or patriarchal relations. So there are some issues in relation to productivity that we can discuss. So I'm going to finish soon, so we can discuss it. Harry told me to go on until 10 too, but I won't. Um, so that's part one. Now I want to get on to the capital part. If there's a problem with productivity and understanding productivity, then there's also an issue to do with the nature of capital in this concept, in this context. And I want to whack on to that. The currency crisis, why is the currency of human capital in crisis? What's the fundamental problem here? Um, well, we know that because we've just looked at it, that there have been these fundamental changes and shifts in the labour market. And that clearly is what's occasioned the crisis. But there's more to it than that. Um, now, I won't say universities are not originally created to serve the economy. They were. Um, so that's slightly wrong. Um, but nevertheless, universities in the past have always had a wider brief than just serving the economy. What we now have under neoliberalism, or whatever we care to call it, is a dispensation where the whole rationale for education is economic. In this country. It's not every country. I've got a Serbian, very fine Serbian PhD student, and he keeps saying, Hugh, that's not true in Serbia, it's not true in Germany, it's not true in a lot of Europe, but it clearly is here. But, you know, uh, Michael Gove says that Andreas Schleicher um, is the most important man in British education. Go, yes. I'm just nuts. I'm nuts because the relationship between PISA test results and economic performance is something else altoge altogether different. And you need a huge leap of imagination and fantasy to think you can put those two things together. Um, so look at the work of Diane Ravitch in the New York Review of Books, one of the leading policy, education policy analysts in America. Um, and if you just go Diane Ravitch, New York Review of Books, you'll see that she bangs on about how brilliant <coughs> America was in the 60s at a time when their international test performances were utterly rock bottom. Came 12th out of 12. So, but there's more to this than meets the eye. The fact that all these changes are going on in the labour market then has raised a fundamental problem about how we understand capital in human capital. And that's going in two different directions now, and they are, in my view, irreconcilable. So, when we thought about capital, we think, okay, um, it seems to be a bit like money capital. It's a kind of metaphor, but one which is quite good. Um, but when you now look at where we are with the notion of capital, we see that we've got real difficulties. So, we need to stand back and say, okay, what's going on here? How appropriate is the notion of capital in this particular context? And people are divided on it. So Lewin Grusky and the OECD and their PIAC um, have tried to decompose graduate um, ness into specific skills. And so, you know, you can... And PIAC actually puts money value, and so do Lewin Grusky, on particular kinds of skills. But you can see immediately there's a huge problem with this. And it comes through in Ewan Grusky's work, because one of the skills is creativity. And then they go, okay, how do we understand creativity? 
Well, there are two forms of, two forms of reasoning which enable people to be creative. Uh, the first one is that you can do a hypothetical deductive creativity, so you deduce from a higher principle, or you have inductive creativity, you do something new as a result of what's gone on in the past. Well, actually, neither of those are the appropriate forms of reasoning for creativity. Um, it's actually abductive or retroductive reasoning, which is the appropriate form for doing that. And they don't even mention it. So or and that's not to whack them on the head. It's just to say that the notion of creativity is a lot more complex than they believe. And so to go, oh, there's a skill, creativity, is kind of nuts. Um, you just can't do it. It just won't stand up for a moment. Um, PIAC, the same sort of thing. But when you look at the PIAC ways of testing literacy, so I think the highest predictor for income is the, your level of literacy. But when you look at the actual um, items they use to test this, you'll walk away shaking your head and scratching it, going, I don't know what's going on here. It's weird. In other words, the moment you start to getting into trying to understand skills which are in some sense culturally created and culturally contested, you're never going to get a result that's going to be clear or clean in these particular ways. Whether you can do it in maths, I don't know. Um, I suspect if I had a top-class mathematician in the room, they'd tell me you couldn't, but I'm not sure. Um, but the very problem is that at that very moment where these economists are trying to decompose skills, atomize them, and then assign a number in terms of returns to um, you're having those skills in the labour market, then along come multinational companies uh, and they go in exactly the opposite direction. What they want is talent. You go, okay, um, talent. And so they now have every... I think almost every m m transnational company or top multinational company has a talent scheme where they recruit and promote talent. Um, how do you become talented? Well, you go to one of the top four universities in your particular country. So that's basically the way they do that. So why do they recruit from those? Because they can't think of a better way of identifying talent than saying the people who are talented are the people at the top. So I went to um, an executive of talent management for a German country, a company in southern Germany. And I said to her, hi, I'm not going to keep you long, I've only got one question. She said, excellent, then we can go for a coffee. And uh, she said, what's the question? I said, what's talent? How do you define it? She said, I don't know, how do you define it? I said, well, I can tell you a story, you ain't going to like it. Which is that the reason you go to top universities is because you don't know what talent is. But hey, if you go to the top university, then that's a guarantee that you're recruiting from the best. And the universities love it because you're recruiting their students. So she just scratches her head and looks at me, and then we had a long discussion, but it didn't go very far, um, about what talent is. But the point about talent is it's an holistic concept. It's not a concept for the indiv of individual skills. And there's much more to it than just sticking the individual skills together into a bundle. Um, there are parts to this which are to do with character. And education has always been to do with character as well as qualifications and skills. Uh, it's always So when you get your next degree from um, this university, you will find that they will say that you have rights and responsibilities as a graduate. Not you've got these skills well done, but in Latin, of course, so you've got to learn the Latin. You need the Latin skill, the skill for that. 
but you will have the rights and responsibilities that you have to carry out uh, as a graduate. And a graduate means more than just a bunch of skills. So the notion of a holistic concept is one that has a long pedigree. It's not just something that's been invented today. So when you look at all that, you go, okay, we don't know what human capital is anymore. It's, it's contested in a way that it wasn't 40 years ago when you had this nice hierar corporate hierarchy, you had a nice university hi or education hierarchy, and you just translated one into the other. And those days are well over. So, human capital is problematic for a number of reasons. Money capital is a cultural construct. They all are. But, you know, if I want to transform or translate my pounds into euros, I can go on to a machine and it will do it for me automatically. Translating credentials into money becomes far more problematic in this day and age. Far more problematic. Unless, of course, you're one of the talented. Then what you do is you sell your soul to the company and they give you lots of money for doing it. Um, so, that is it. So, fundamentally, what I'm suggesting is that there are huge problems empirically with human capital theory in that tight-knit sense that I was des describing, that formal sense, that um, if you look at the issue of productivity, which is so central, there are problems with that. Um, and if you look in terms of the notion of capital, there are problems with that. So that's it. You can now blast away. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Uh, we have uh, 